0: The EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network presents Vatican Insider with Joan Lewis. Each week, Joan brings you news from inside the Vatican and the Church around the world, as well as interviews and answers to your questions. Now, here's the host of Vatican Insider, Joan Lewis. Welcome to Vatican Insider on this Thanksgiving weekend. I'll be off for a few days. No news segment this weekend, but my colleagues are putting together a best of However, I do have some special words about Thanksgiving in Rome. With the exception of some COVID rules for gatherings in 2020, Thanksgiving Day in Rome is always very special. It is, of course, a special day for millions of Americans, wherever they live, be it overseas or in the United States. For me, as a Catholic and member of St. Patrick's Parish in Rome, the main ingredient of this day, so to speak, will always remain the same. Our morning Mass of Thanksgiving, at which the American ambassador to the Holy See always reads the annual Presidential Thanksgiving Proclamation. It's amazing to me how many Americans do not know of the Presidential Proclamation. George Washington issued the first such proclamation on October 3, 1789. It began and ended with a reference to God. Quote, Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. The president then assigned a special day that year, quote, to be devoted to thanking God for his beneficence, unquote. For many years now, the turkey part of my day happens at the Pontifical North American College. Thanksgiving is one of the more special days at NAC and it always begins, as Thanksgiving should, with Mass. Last year the Mass was changed from morning to 5 p.m. After Mass, a full turkey meal with Italian additions of antipasto and divine ravioli is on the menu. Seminarians, priests, and their guests gather at what they call state tables. For example, Ohio seminarians and friends and family members Sit at a table decorated with all things Ohio. The same for Texas. And by the way, Texans do things in a big way. The same for California, Pennsylvania, etc., etc. Fifth year students, those who are ordained priests and have returned to Rome for a fifth year of studies, usually serve the meal. The U.S. Ambassador to the Holy See once again reads the presidential proclamation. Another possibility for a full turkey meal is Homebake's Jesse Smeal. Jesse has been taking orders for weeks for those who pre-order a full turkey dinner, be it for just a couple or six people. Some of those who order turkey dinners are even seminarians. Turkey lunch or takeout is at the Monteverdi Homebake location. Jesse is also a terrific pastry chef and he works around the clock baking the traditional Thanksgiving desserts. You have to place your order early, of course. He's only one person, but I do know he sleeps very little for four or five days. I'll be enjoying several days off, Thanksgiving Thursday and Black Friday, EWTN's gift to staff members at this time of year. Just another reason to be both happy and grateful. As I prepare this segment, it is before Thanksgiving Day, but I want to tell you that I will remember all of you, my blog readers, TV viewers, and radio listeners, at Mass Thanksgiving Day, praying for your health, happiness, spiritual well-being, and special prayer intentions. Now following is my personal prayer of Thanksgiving. I hope you might see yourself in my words. Dear Lord, how have you blessed me? Let me count the ways. My wonderful family, my beautiful faith, my ocean of friends, the friends throughout your great universe whom you have brought into my life. Does a day pass you do not bring some unique new person into my life? The newest member of my wonderful large family? A friend from another country? Perhaps another wonderful seminarian or priest added to the many who have made my life and faith so fulfilling. The list is very long. Does a day pass that I am not enriched and blessed by some amazing event that you placed on my path as a learning moment, a time of prayer, a period of silent thanksgiving? You blessed me by enriching my faith over the years, allowing me to work for you every day to bring your word and your teachings and your truth to so many. My words by comparison are very insignificant, but truly heartfelt. I am filled with both thanksgiving and joy as I write these words, as my mind's eye overflows with images of each family member, of friends here in Rome and around the globe, of the magnificent events that daily fill my life. I sign most emails and letters with God bless, and under that I write Joan, but silently I read it as God bless Joan, and you have blessed me, heartfelt thanks. And thank you for the beauty of the earth, for the beauty of the earth, for the beauty of the skies, for the love which from our birth over and around us lies. Lord of all, to thee we raise this our grateful hymn of praise. For the beauty of each hour, of the day and of the night, hill and vale and tree and flower, sun and moon and stars of light. Lord of all, to thee we raise this our grateful hymn of praise. For the joy of human love, brother, sister, parent, child, friends on earth and friends above, pleasures pure and undefiled. Lord of all, to thee we raise, this our grateful hymn of praise. Now, of course, that was part of a Christian hymn composed many years ago by Folliot S. Pierpont. Welcome to the Q&A, which today is about the Feast of Christ the King. I've been asked by many, how long has this been in the Church? Well, now I'll tell you. The Solemnity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, commonly referred to as the Feast of Christ the King, is a relatively recent addition to the Western liturgical calendar, having been instituted in 1925 by Pope Pius XI for the Roman Rite of the Catholic Church. Pius did so as an antidote to secularism, a way of life that leaves God out of man's thinking and living and organizes his life as if God did not exist. The feast is intended to proclaim in a striking and effective manner Christ's royalty over individuals, families, society, governments, and nations. Pius XI's encyclical, Quas Primus, was promulgated December 11, 1925. In his 1969 Motu Propio Misteri Paschalis*, Pope Paul VI moved the feast to the final Sunday of the liturgical year, before the commencement of a new liturgical year on the first Sunday of Advent. He assigned it to the highest rank of solemnity, thus liturgical vestments for the day are either white or gold, in keeping with other joyous feasts honoring Christ. The earliest date on which it can occur is November 20th, and the latest is November 26th.
1: He is honored by the church as a saint with the title Second Apostle of Germany. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. The Dutch-born Jesuit St. Peter Canisius was one of the key figures in restoring the Catholic faith in Germany during the
0: Protestant Reformation. He is renowned for his catechism and also for his founding more than 40 universities that proved bastions of Catholicism across Central Europe. He died in 1597 and was named a doctor in 1925. To find out more, visit EWTN.com and click on Catholicism. The EWTN On-Demand platform features 50 new podcasts every week, as well as an ever-expanding library of audio and video content for Catholics who want to learn more about their faith simply using their mobile device, computer, or TV. Your favorite EWTN programs are available 24-7. Visit EWTN.com and click On-Demand. EWTN is the Global
1: Catholic Network.
0: This is a Pro-Life Minute with doctors Steven and Gracie Christie. Here's a pro-choice argument that always makes me cringe. A fetus or embryo is not alive, it's just a clump of cells, and nobody really knows when life begins. What's your answer to that? Sure.
1: Whether or not something is alive is not a matter of philosophy or religion or politics or personal introspection. What is alive or living is a purely scientific question that science has fully settled. And it's spelled out in nearly every embryology and biology textbook used in just about every medical school the world over. There's overwhelming scientific consensus that from the moment of conception, an embryo fulfills all eight criteria of biological life.
0: That's right. Criteria like the capacity for growth and metabolism, being responsive to stimuli, reproductive capacity, and homeostasis. So why don't we stick to the most basic scientific facts in this debate? Life begins at conception.
1: Is prayer powerful? St. Alphonsus Liguri put it this way, he who prays will be saved. He who does not pray, well, you get the point. Prayer can bring us salvation. It's
0: the means of putting us into communion with God, and God can do all things. The more our will lines up with the will of God, the more powerful our prayers. And the simpler they become, ultimately, be it done to me, Lord, according to thy word. That's the prayer God will always answer. Welcome back to Vatican Insider. Here's Joan Lewis. Welcome once again to Vatican Insider, to the interview segment. I have a very special guest today who's also a a very good friend, and that's Father Matt Berrios. He's a Paulist priest, and uh, most of you know from other programs, from things I've written, that the Paulist Fathers have been in Rome 99 years, and they've been administering to the Catholic American community and other English language residences residents or visitors. So we now have two Paulist priests at St. Patrick's. That's Father Steve Petroff and Joe Ciccone. But our third Paulist, Father Matt, is studying at the Pontifical Oriental Institute, which is part of the Jesuit-run Gregorian. So welcome, Matt.
1: Oh, so good to be here, Joan. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, it's about time I started looking at something as difficult for some people as the Oriental Churches. Because I know whenever I've written about it or posted something on Facebook, people say, are they Catholic? And of course, that's exactly what you're going to tell us. Now, the Jesuit-run Gregorian University, of course, was founded by St. Ignatius himself in um, it began as the Roman college in 1551 and is the first, was the first Jesuit university in the world. And actually, St. Ignatius envisioned a university of nations for the defense and propagation of the faith. And uh, so, of course, here as we sit, uh, the university is 460 years old. This University of Nations is something we see, I've studied there. I took Spanish, in, in the sense of students coming from the different countries, which you'll tell us about. Now, the Pontifical Oriental Institute is part of the Greg, and that was founded by Benedict the Fifteenth in 1917, but why don't I let you tell us what it's about, but first define Oriental churches.
1: Sure. Well, in the most basic way of understanding it, the Oriental churches are those churches either that are in communion with um, the Holy Father here, with the uh, Catholic Church, or are part of what we describe popularly as the Eastern Orthodox or Oriental Orthodox churches or uh, Assyrian Church of the East. And essentially, they are the churches that grew up in what you could say is the Eastern part of the Roman Empire. And so they, in their expressions of the faith, have um, oftentimes a Semitic flavor. They have a homegrown flavor, I guess you could say, um, based either on the culture, the language, the sensibilities of the people. So it's a really varied phenomenon there.
0: I worked at the Vatican for many years, and I didn't always understand what Oriental or Eastern churches. I think sometimes if you say Oriental or Eastern, you think of the Orient. You think of Japan, you think of China, you think of Korea, nations in the Orient. We're really, like you said, talking the the Middle East, where obviously Christianity was born. But then, on my first trips to the Holy Land and to the Middle East, I realized we're talking about the Chaldean, because I spent quite some time in in Iraq. The Chaldean is an Oriental church, and the Maronite and the Melkite. These are some of the, Probably the more well-known rites and well, certainly the Syrian the larger Catholic, ones.
1: yeah. What's interesting is actually that um, when we say Eastern Church, actually up until maybe about <laughs> the 13th century, maybe a little later, the churches, the Syrian Church of the East in particular, actually stretched all the way through uh, China, all the way to Japan.
0: Ah, I did and so know ac-
1: actually, um, when we say Eastern, we mean historically most of Asia, because it also includes Christians um, in India that always received right. their tradition and their bishop from Saint from. Thomas. Yeah. Exactly.
0: It's funny because the um, I did not know that about the history. So, what does the Institute offer? Why do we need a Pontifical Oriental Institute?
1: Well, I would say that the justification you can really find in the events surrounding the founding of the Orientali. essentially, 1917, you had the Ottoman Empire, which was basically dissolving in World War I, the, the, the sick old man of Europe, as they called it. and most of the Eastern Christians lived under the Dominion, um, you know, obviously with the exception of a lot of the Slavic um, churches most of them lived under the dominion of the ottoman empire and they were experiencing as we know historically a lot of difficult situations the armenian genocide the assyrian christian and pontic greek uh, genocide and so basically you had a world in turmoil as far as eastern christianity was concerned so benedict 15th instituted the orientali mm-hmm. as a means of study and preservation and enrichment of uh, the eastern churches
0: letting us in in the West uh, know that there is another lung because John Paul used to speak of the, of the two lungs of Europe because we would always talk about Eastern Europe now when we say Europe we we don't use the word Eastern anymore we are all one and that goes for the church because the Catholic Church was the Christian Church was Constantinople and Rome so you had East and you had Rome supposedly the West again the the two lungs now, what brings you to study here?
1: Well, uh, our mutual friend Father Ron Robertson, while I was in seminary, essentially through the work that he did and the stories that he would tell us, the literature that he would offer us to read, he really piqued my interest in the um, the study of the Eastern Christian churches, the history, the theology, the way in which it can offer insights into our own tradition. Because, as you say, it's 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 all about that that two lungs mm-hmm. image that John Paul II gave us. It helps us, even as Latin Christians, um, have a fuller sense of who we are.
0: Well, you know, Father Ron worked in Rome. I couldn't remember the years, so I looked him up yesterday. But he was at the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. That's where I first got to know him. And then, obviously, saying Masses occasionally at uh, Santa Susanna at the time. And he was there from 1988 to 1992. And currently, the Associate Director of the Secretariat for ecumenical and interreligious affairs at the US Conference of, of Catholic Bishops. So he's at the Paulist House of Studies with our Father Greg Aparcel, who oh, who yes. left St. Patrick's last year, you know. So what particular courses are you taking? Are you taking language courses or Greek or Oh, and yeah? how well,
1: as uh, my, my spiritual father, uh, Father Joseph Lee, a Ukrainian Catholic monk, once told me, because he was a graduate from here, the name of the game, Matt, is languages. Languages, languages, yeah. languages. You have to speak Italian. Then you have to learn uh, at least how to read French and German. Then you have to have Greek and Latin under your belt. Then you have to do one or two other yeah. languages. So, <laughs> um, Luckily, I've done most of that already beforehand, but I'm studying Syriac right now. Wow. Um, a little bit of Arabic, modern Greek, sure. as well. So it's.
0: Didn't you often wonder when I know when John Paul? Became pope. I think he was the first pope, maybe the first man that any of us knew who spoke like twelve languages. You know, like eight fluently. I mean, you wonder I how. I think he how,
1: still has the record.
0: Yeah, well, he probably well, he does. I know Benedict had quite a few, but not as many as John Paul. And you wonder. I, having studied in in languages and taught French, it's just how. I think you have to have a gift for it because just for the mind to compartmentalize itself and uh, on one side of the brain you know a slavic language on another a romance language and then you've got hungarian which is a combination oh, of heaven us. knows what's yeah well exactly. different language family
1: entirely but it's all about finding the style of learning that works for you i know that i like to work through things grammatically this just comes from the way that i studied classical languages at um, city university of new york just the particular method that um, that they uh, really drilled into us worked for me, and so that's the way that I do it. But some people like to learn intuitively by listening. And-
0: yeah. I loved languages because what they allowed, a second language and then a third, then a fourth, what it allowed me to do, to travel, to learn cultures, to talk in their language with the people of a country, even if I was... You know, not very fluent, just to be able to converse, and then somebody would correct you. But you could sit down with a somebody from Spain or France, and there's something wonderful about speaking in that person's language. You don't need shorthand. You don't need charades or. Well, hand it, gestures. it certainly helps
1: with um, learning the minutiae and appreciating the subtleties of a culture. Yes. Um I know. I, Oh, my goodness, I probably sounded so pretentious saying this, but when I was learning Greek, I mean, you really don't get Homer, you don't get the classics, I mean, fully until you've read it in the original and you get a lot of the word plays, um, the tone, the timbre of the literature.
0: Exactly. Now, in addition to languages, what other courses do you take?
1: Oh, so this year I'm in what we call the Propodudic year, which is essentially the year year, year that... um, The introductory (laughs) (laughs) year. Well, well, shorthand for those of us who aren't native Italian speakers. Basically, it's the year for us to get accustomed to doing academic work in Italian in the field of Eastern Christian studies. So we cover a number of things um, Eastern Roman history, Byzantine history, Eastern Christian spirituality, liturgy, architecture, uh, systematic theology, the whole kit and goo
0: so how long will you be in Rome? I don't think I've asked you that before.
1: Well, that's a great question. Uh, I'm not entirely sure on that one either. I know the, um, the licenza that I'm doing, the equivalent of the English master's degree is three years. And then hopefully I will stick around to do the doctorate. That would be maybe another three or yeah. four years. Not entirely sure. So,
0: And what would you do with this? degree, these degrees?
1: Well, that is an excellent question. Um, Teaching at some level is always a possibility. Certainly, following in Ron's footsteps at the PCPCU wouldn't be um, a terrible thing. I would just have to play it by ear the further along I get.
0: Sure. Well, I imagine it's a very interesting field, but a very small one. Uh, I don't mean the number of churches or anything else, but still where you would fit in, you know, as, as a teacher, as a professor, or working for the Council for, for Unity. That would be urgent, almost, it seems to me. Well, Father Mark Lewis, no relation to me, but um, I interviewed him a short time ago because he's a new dean of of, academ- of academics, uh, the vice dean of academics, and he took me all over the Greg and i could see the wonderful technology i saw the machines i saw machines in the library that you know that clean the air <clears throat> and now just getting into the university You have to have a pass. He had to come out to the front door to meet me because you have to have a pass to to get in, which later will become it has nothing to do with health. Now I think it does measure your temperature. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, So later it won't have anything to do with health. It's just if you get in the university, you can show your ID card in these scanners. And if you're just a guest like I would be, then you go to the office and meet the person you're there to see. Now, tell me about who the, your classmates are. Where they're from? Pretty much all over the world, or oh, all just... over all over the world
1: of Eastern Christianity and beyond. Most of them are actually from the um, countries of origin for a lot of these Eastern Christian churches. From sure. Lebanon, from Ukraine. We even have a couple. I think we have one or two from Russia. We have a whole group from Romania, from uh, the Kerala region, who are from the Syro Malabar Church. We have a couple of armenians so it's really very two americans of course okay
0: well for father matt what are you what will you take home what are you taking home now from your meetings with these people from so many countries and cultures
1: my friendship with them which yeah. is in one way really what ecumenical work is largely about the theological dialogue is important but it's actually the connection and goodwill the friendships that you make with members of other churches that there's a communion of love that exists first upon which you do all the theological heavy lifting
0: it has to be great though to sit down with someone from the chaldean the melkite the maronite the syriac you know traditions the rites, and learn a lot more that maybe a textbook isn't going to give you
1: Oh, yes. Well, you learn their experience as, well, you learn about what it means to be a Maronite today or a Chaldean today, which you don't always get in a textbook. You get the experience of hardship. You get the way in which people frame their joys and hopes.
0: Oh, I can absolutely second that because I spent several weeks in Iraq, all total on two visits, and I spent about the same amount of time in Lebanon. And just being immersed in those, I went to masses I didn't understand a single word, unless it might have been Latin, Kyrie or something, Kyrie eleison, but, um, but, I mean, I knew I was at a Catholic Mass. And I think the other unusual thing is so many of, if not all, the um, Eastern rites do allow priests to be married. There are married priests in many of those rites. I think you cannot become a bishop if you're
1: married, Correct.
0: right? Yeah. yeah. So that's something culturally extraordinarily different from what we know. Well,
1: some of my Romanian classmates, actually, they're currently in major seminary right now. They aren't ordained deacons yet. They have to be married before that. But they, you know, talk about, you know, telephoning home to their um, sweetheart all the time. It's just Mm. a little bit of an interesting cultural um, counterpoint to to the Roman tradition.
0: Well you now you said it was our mutual friend, Father Ron Roberson, who, just you know listening to him, having conversations, kind of drew you to this area of study to this part of the Catholic Church, Catholic meaning uni- uh, universal. Well, what in particular was it? Was it the differences?
1: Well, I would say a large part of it's the liturgy um, ah. and the theolo- well, the way that liturgy mm. and theology and spirituality are so tightly interconnected. Sometimes in the Roman church, we like to, uh, for the sake of having a clear picture of what we're saying, what we're talking about in our mind, we can tend to compartmentalize and divide systematic theology from spirituality, from Uh liturgy. But in a very um, organic way, they view it as a much more integrated whole in a way that we're rediscovering and we've been rediscovering as a Latin church. So that really Mm. um, entranced me at first.
0: Well, if you ever want to know more about the Institute, the Pontifical Oriental Institute, the Italian acronym is PIO, P-I-O, which also means pious. Father Matt, thank you for your time. We've been talking with Father Matt Berrios, a Paulist father who's with the other two Paulists at St. Patrick's Church in Rome, but here to study at the Pontifical Oriental Institute. And an area of the church people don't know about, but it is beautiful, and their liturgy is beautiful. So, Father Matt, thanks for taking time out of a busy day. I know you have some exams coming up, so um, God bless you for that.
1: Thank you, Joan. For more information on these stories,
0: or to check out Joan's blog, and to ask her a question, go to EWTN.com. That's EWTN.com. Thanks for listening to Vatican Insider on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.